It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Overcoming poverty, burning off stress, Paying attention with ADHD, building a career, beating a painful genetic disorder. After 13 years of helping others do the same, fitness became a foundation for my life's greatest gift and challenge, becoming a father. My name's Alex Van Houten, and I believe that what I eat, how I move, and what habits I live by are the rock upon which I build my physical, psychological, and spiritual well-being. And whatever I do will rub off on my kids and my community. Welcome to Defining Dad Bod, where we work to untangle the messy knots of the health and fitness industry as if your children's lives depended on it. Because they do. This is where we decide to make our bodies stand for something bigger than ourselves. This is where we find practical wisdom to live by, one powerful conversation at a time. May the words spoken here inspire you to keep moving forward no matter where you are. Who knows who you could be? you can become 1% better every single day. We can do the show thanks to the support of listeners just like you. For more information how you can become part of the inner circle, go to findingdadbod.com slash inner circle. That's findingdadbod.com slash inner circle. What's up, guys? This is Alex Van Houten with Defining Dad Bod. I hope you're doing super well. Today, we're diving into the second part of our Beyond Calories series. Beyond Calories Part 2, we're going to be talking about the calorie fad. So let's dive right in. If you missed Beyond Calories Part 1, what your calories aren't telling you about your nutrition and exercise, I highly recommend that you stop right now and check that episode out. This episode will be much more meaningful if you have that one under your belt. Today, I'm going to talk about the measure of calories in and of itself. We're going to talk specifically about what calories can't measure. We're going to talk about the impracticality of application. We're also going to talk about the inaccuracy of the actual measure of calories. And then we're going to talk about the money behind the business of calories. And by the end of this episode, no matter what your experience with calories has been, Perhaps they've been a positive and powerful way to get you to the point where you are right now. Or perhaps they've let you down in the past. They've been too complicated, extremely frustrating, and yielding limited results for you, your loved ones, or maybe even clients. I hope by the end of this talk that you have a great understanding of the core issues regarding calories, and that you'll be ready to move forward with me on the journey to understanding our food more deeply so that our daily choices can be less about energy expenditure 
and more about building the version of ourselves, our kids, and our communities out of the great high-quality food that we choose to put in our face. Before I get to a proper calorie thrashing, I wanted to take a moment to steelman the calorie argument. If you're unfamiliar with the idea of steelmanning an argument, it's the opposite of strawmanning an argument. That is, before you tear an argument to shreds, do your best to construct the strongest version of your opposing argument that you can, so that if you can actually take down the argument itself and create something better instead, then you've successfully deconstructed the most powerful version of the argument. And so here's the best steel manning I can muster for calories. Point one, the laws of thermodynamics are very difficult to argue with, and our bodies are no different from most chemical systems. Primarily, that if we eat food, we either have to store it or burn it. And the measure of calories gives us the best opportunity to understand the energy of our food coming in versus the energy we burn through activity and metabolic processes. Number two, it's useful and helpful to people and practitioners alike to have one number that they can focus on in order to achieve better health and fitness results. Since many of the problems that we face in the medical community regarding growing problems related to chronic disease are many of them byproducts of the obesity epidemic, then calories are a powerful way to use the laws of thermodynamics to narrow weight loss down to a single number that we can all pay attention to. And the research seems to indicate that if we can successfully minimize the number of calories that we're consuming while maximizing the number of calories that we're burning through exercise, we do indeed achieve weight loss and improve markers for the prognosis of diabetes, cardiovascular disease, and even many endocrine dysfunctions. And third, many educational and regulatory bodies, including the government of many developed countries and the accreditation institutions for professionals like licensed dietitians, have well-established and difficult-to-change methodologies around the implementation of calorie measures in our food production, labels proliferated by the Food and Drug Administration, and programs created and implemented by the professionals whose job it is to research and apply the science of nutrition practice, both in medical and non-medical settings. Lastly, if we're not telling people to count calories, then what can we tell them to pay attention to in order to achieve better health outcomes, reduced health care costs, and less confusion among consumer and nutrition professional alike? In short, what's better for the obesity epidemic than a simplified, codified, marketed, practiced, researched, and widely accepted version of thermodynamics. As far as steel manning the argument for using calories to help people lose weight or achieve better markers of health and fitness and well-being with regard to their nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle change, I think that's the best that I can do. If you know somebody who can make a better argument than I just did in favor of calories, please let me know. I am actively looking to have a professional, respectful, but intelligent argument with somebody who believes in this philosophy to the core of their being, because I think it would be enlightening for both of us and enlightening to the listeners of the Defining Dad Bod show. But minus that influence presently, I'm going to spend the duration of this show working to dismantle that steel manned argument, which, as a side note, would definitely lend a little bit of evidence to my wife's assertion that I would be very happy just to argue with myself if given the opportunity. How about you keep this bit of evidence to yourself, and I won't make you run an extra mile in your workout today. Fair enough? 
All right, so where are we going to start with this argument? I guess first it's important that we talk about what calories are not measuring. In Beyond Calories Part 1, I spent the time to talk to you about how calories are actually measured in food. In short, calories are a measure of heat energy given off by food when it's combusted in what's called a bomb calorimeter. In other words, food is burned, it gives off heat energy, and the amount of heat energy is measured. We'll talk about the inaccuracies of this particular way of measuring calories in my third point against this calorie argument. But let's talk about some aspects of food that you cannot measure by simply quantifying the heat that's trapped in the chemical bonds of the food. This particular quip about the calorie fed is not very difficult to understand. In fact, when you say, what don't calories measure? The answer is literally everything else you can measure in a food. For instance, what does the caloric value of a food tell us about the fiber content of that food? Fiber can be a pretty complicated subject. Soluble fiber, insoluble fiber, the preconditions of the bacteria of the gut that the fiber is introduced to, and even the amount of an enzyme called amylase that each person has a unique genetic predisposition toward in their saliva. All of these things can affect the use of fiber in the body, digestively speaking. And yet, even with that level of complexity with regard to our intake of fiber, the number of calories that are in a food aren't even correlated remotely with the amount of fiber that's in the food or the quality of that fiber. And similarly, micronutrients like manganese, magnesium, potassium, sodium, phosphorus, and antioxidants like vitamin A, vitamin B, vitamin C, and all of the others are not the least bit represented in the number of heat energy units that you get from burning it in a bomb calorimeter. You've heard me use the example on the show that if you put 100 calories of spinach in one hand and 100 calories of Skittles in the other, that you intuitively understand that even though the heat energy represented by these two different foods at two different quantities might have an enormously different impact on the body, many people don't understand why that is. Put very simply, the fiber, the micronutrients, and the antioxidants found in spinach are going to have a very profoundly different effect on your metabolism and the structure of your body than the processed carbohydrates and God knows what else is in your Skittles. In short, since calories are simply a measure of the heat energy trapped in the chemical bonds of a food, then those who are really gung-ho about calorie counting should ask themselves, is our food more than fuel? Think of your vehicle. If you're driving a car today, it's very likely that it operates on an internal combustion engine. You add fuel to that engine, usually in the form of a mix of octane and ethanol. The fuel is introduced to a spark in the presence of oxygen, and the expansive explosion of the chemical energy into heat energy can be converted to mechanical energy. The byproducts of the reaction shoot out the tailpipe, and congratulations you get from point A to point B. In a car, fuel is fuel. And if our bodies operated like cars, then the measure of calories with regard to our food would make plenty of sense. However, our bodies differ from the vehicles that are on the road on a few very deep levels. For the purpose of our argument, I just want to dive into two primary ways that your body differs from a vehicle to show you why counting calories doesn't make sense in directing your own nutritional goals. The first major difference is that unlike your car, your body actually builds itself out of the food that you eat. Your car's engine comes built for you. Or if you're lucky enough to have some mechanical prowess, maybe you built the engine yourself. High five, man. 
But after the engine itself is built, its job is to simply process through the fuel that it's fed to release the energy from the fuel and get rid of the exhaust. Your body, on the other hand, is very different. As an organism, your body is continually regenerating itself, and the building blocks that it uses to create itself again comes directly from the food that you eat. In short, until the engine in your car wears out, most people aren't concerned with the fiber, micronutrients, macronutrients, glycemic index, and antioxidants present in your gasoline. Why? Because your car's not going to use the gasoline to build itself out of. When your engine gets all muddied up, you can come in for some maintenance. Or if it's really messed up, you can junk it or trade it in for a new engine. And that's just not how the body works. Your food is more than fuel, because your body, unlike a car engine, builds itself out of the fuel that you feed it as well. Instead of simply being fuel, the engine actually becomes what it's been fed. Another way to think about that particular point is to look at yourself in the mirror right now. Do you actually believe that what you're looking at is the sum total of calories that you've put in your body versus the sum total of calories that have left your body? That you're simply storing energy? Or are you looking at a body that's been built out of components that aren't measured by calories at all? When you look in the mirror, you see the product of micronutrients, macronutrients, antioxidants, fatty acids, glycemic indexes, and yes, even soluble and insoluble fiber. You have literally become what you've eaten in the last five years, and you really can't say that about the car in your driveway. The second place where this food is fuel issue really breaks down is that the engine you have in your body is the only engine you'll ever have. When your car gets worn out, you can take it into the shop, or trade it in for a better one, or swear off driving altogether, buy a bike, and get some exercise while you're going from place to place. But you're stuck with the engine of your body for the rest of your life. The food-as-fuel concept presupposes that if you feed enough junk-quality fuel to a car, you can just get rid of it. But if you feed the body you're walking around in with low-quality calories, it'll just get rid of you. Think about that. Low-quality fuel in your car will get you from point A to point B, but low-quality fuel in your body will shorten the life of the one engine that you're stuck with. And while I'm a firm believer that a high-quantity life, that is how many years you live, doesn't really matter if you don't spend those years very well. I also believe that living a good amount of time gives you a higher probability to get your stuff together, to be there for your kids, to watch your grandkids grow up, and hopefully learn from the mistakes of your youth so every year you celebrate finds you more meaningful than the previous year. And just like our quality of life likely can't be measured by the number of years that we actually live, the first reason we need to get over our calorie fad your calories don't measure the quality of the food that you're, one, building your engine out of, and two, that you're gunking it up with. My second major issue with the calorie problem is the impracticality of application. I've told stories in the past on the show about how young trainer Alex came up with perfect programs for clients to follow. I would spend the time to get to know them, to understand what exactly needed to happen in their exercise and their nutrition in order to get them where they say they wanted to be. And then, I'd give them the program. What I found is that even when my clients saw me three or even four times a week for individual training sessions to make the most out of their exercise program and to regularly touch base with the coach who's in their corner to encourage and support them, they still didn't stick to their program outside of the gym. We would work out really hard and then they would eat like garbage. We would get a great cardio session in and then they would have a really hard time getting to sleep on time. 
we'd see some great progress for two weeks, and then we'd stop seeing progress when work threw an unexpected wrench in their well-thought-out plans. And through working with a seemingly endless number of well-meaning clients who were willing to put money down on a perfect program, and then who were hugely incapable, regardless of the level of encouragement, of putting their program into practice, I learned something very important about life transformation through nutrition and exercise programming. And that is, we have a finite amount of willpower. And willpower is required for what psychologists call high-level executive functioning tasks. And if somebody's going to be successful in their life transformation, then the level of change that a program asks them to make needs to use the least amount of willpower to get the largest amount of results. And if that's not the case, anything else going on in that person's life will eat up the bandwidth required for them to make change. Imagine that you wake up every single day with a battery life meter, just like your phone has. But instead of 100% power, you wake up with 100% willpower. Willpower is the reserve currency that you have that allows you to make conscious decisions. And the more difficult those decisions are to make, the more willpower they drain throughout your day. And going back to the phone analogy, it's just like your phone. Some applications require a lot more battery power to use them, while others don't require much at all. Sending a text, for instance, uses a very small amount of battery power. Whereas FaceTiming grandma with a rambunctious three-year-old not only drains your battery power very quickly, but also might wear on this willpower thing as well. This idea of willpower is very well studied, and it's a widely accepted fact that psychologically speaking, people have a diminishing amount of willpower. People begin each new day with a larger amount of willpower than they ended it. And if the day is particularly trying, it's very possible that you can run completely out of willpower. The thing I didn't realize about creating the perfect program for clients was that I had to take their willpower into account. And if they were going to make conscious moves in their nutrition, exercise, and even lifestyle habits, that they would likely be relying on their willpower in order to make those changes and to help stick to them so that they became habits and required less willpower in the future. That's not too difficult, right, Alex? Actually wrong because the amount of willpower that somebody has seems to differ from day to day given their particular obstacles. Think about it. Sometimes your kids are more stressful than others. Sometimes your job demands more of you than other days. There are times that relationships are a huge joy to be around, and other times where relationships require an immense amount of personal energy and emotionality. Throw into that a little bit of health issues and some sleep and stress management problems, and you've got yourself a modern-day person who's got maybe 5% extra willpower, if that, to devote to some sort of nutrition or exercise intervention. And now, by counting calories, you want to ask that overworked, underpaid person who's trying to be a good mom, who's trying to do a good job at work, who's likely going through tumultuous relationship issues, health issues, and maybe even sleep and stress management issues, to diligently track every morsel of food they eat, serving size and all, to diligently track every active calorie burned through exercise to monitor their steps and then using either old-fashioned pen and paper or calorie counting applications to do some mathematical gymnastics to ensure that they maintain their caloric deficit no more calories in than calories out and in fact far fewer calories in than calories out and if at the end of the day you find yourself in a place having reached your deficit before you actually feel full 
or God forbid, want to drown your sorrows in a pint of ice cream and a bourbon, then you have to have the willpower to stop yourself or go for a run to earn the calories you'd like to put in your face. Are you seeing the problem here with counting calories? It's for this reason that a recent meta-analysis of weight loss interventions found that there were actually two things that every single successful weight loss program had in common. Interestingly, neither of them were counting calories. The first thing they all had in common was the support of a professional who checked in with you at least weekly. It seems that bolstering the extra willpower isn't so difficult if you have somebody, one, to stay accountable to, and two, who will guide you and encourage you when willpower fails and you need something to fall back on. The second thing that successful weight loss programs had in common was regular engagement with a social support system. More important than counting calories seemed to be that you had a group of ladies that you enjoyed water aerobics with on a regular basis, or a group of guys who also found trail running a lot of fun and you met with them regularly, or a group of friends who instead of going to another hot wings and beer happy hour, were happy to rotate cooking responsibilities at home, and in food prep, were mindful of doing a better job with quality than the average fried chicken chain. In short, while we've worked hard to boil thermodynamics down to one simple number, the calorie, to measure our foods, the simple act of measuring every calorie that you eat and every calorie that you exercise, and then working hard to stick to the deficit, requires a level of willpower that most people just don't have. Well, then that person probably doesn't really want to reach their goals, Alex, I can hear you saying. How hard can it be to devote 5% of your willpower to adding and subtracting calorie numbers? If that's your mind, I would invite you to get real about the level of willpower required to choose lower calorie options with regard to foods, like a chicken and a side salad, over higher calorie foods, like a cinnamon roll and a vanilla latte. I would also invite you to investigate the level of willpower required of somebody to exercise regularly if they haven't been exercising. You have to remember to bring your clothes. You have to remember to get to the gym. You have to remember to do the exercises appropriately. You have to expend willpower to keep yourself doing things that are generally uncomfortable and not a lot of fun for most people. Then you have to endure the willpower expense of being around a bunch of people you're not used to being around and taking time from your kids and your family and even your job in order to make that thing happen. And then I also invite you to estimate the amount of willpower required to step on the scale or to get in your clothes every single day, to see minimal results since calorie counting really isn't that effective, but then to keep going along with this inapplicable program anyway. There are people who are successful in applying calorie counting to their lives in order to achieve positive results. And when I meet those people, I high-five them and congratulate their Herculean effort to set things aside and to make this broken system work for them. But for the vast majority of people that I've coached in my career, real people with limited willpower and plenty of things requiring them to spend their willpower in different directions, calorie counting is impractical and there has to be a better solution. Calorie counting as an executive function is impractical and there are better ways to spend the bandwidth of your life. So let's talk about the inaccuracy of the measure itself. Point number three that I have against calories. There was an article put out by The Economist this year called The Death of the Calorie. The link's in the show notes below if you want to look a little bit more into it or look at a much more extrapolated version of the issues with regard to measuring calories. But in short, measuring the caloric composition of foods is actually very problematic. 
It turns out that for some people, measuring the absolute caloric value of foods is actually very problematic for a number of reasons. First, did you know that cooking actually changes the caloric value of some foods? For instance, according to the USDA Nutrient Database, that is usually the gold standard with regard to how food companies are measuring the caloric value of foods, 100 grams of raw chicken contains 114 calories. Now, we don't eat chicken raw unless we're really looking to get some sort of foodborne illness, so we eat chicken cooked in a number of ways. You might be interested to know that roasted chicken has 165 calories per 100 grams. That's an increase in caloric value of 50 calories. Stewed chicken has 151 calories per 100 grams. And since stewing and roasting are both good examples of cooking that doesn't actually add exogenous calories, the question becomes, where do the actual calories come from? Cooking is not only a heating process, but it also changes the nature of the chemical bonds of the molecules that the food's made of. As a small example, adding heat to protein, which is essentially a chain of amino acids wrapped all over each other, actually denatures the protein and extends out the chain, sometimes even breaking it into pieces that are more easily digestible by the body. In effect, cooking often makes calories more available to the body. Here's a question. If I have a chicken breast and I add a tablespoon of coconut oil to the pan so that I can heat the chicken breast evenly, do I add the raw chicken breast caloric value and the tablespoon of coconut oil to my caloric consumption? Or do I take the value of a roasted chicken breast, calorically speaking, and add only the amount of coconut oil that ended up on the chicken breast? How would I even know that? Well, you don't. And when you add cooking to the factors with regard to caloric consumption, you end up with the cumulative problem of rounding errors. The same thing becomes clear when you ask about the regulations around what's reported on food labels in terms of calories. By law, calories are only required to be reported within 20% accuracy of their actual measure in terms of serving size. Add to that the fact that most people completely underestimate the actual size of a serving, and very few go about the task of measuring every single serving of every single food that they eat, we fall prey to the problem of estimation. Let's say that thermodynamics is the key to making sure that everybody loses the weight that they need to lose and gains the muscle that they need to gain. And if only we were better at our calories in versus calories out equation every single day, then we'd have things figured out. Wouldn't it stand to reason that if calories were the only thing that mattered, then we would need a very accurate measure of calories, both in terms of intake and in terms of output, in order to better understand caloric deficits? Just like the calories consumed, your calories expended are also estimations. How does your activity monitor know exactly how many calories that you expended by getting 10,000 steps today? Well, it takes your age, and it takes your gender, and it takes your body weight and your height as reported in the profile for the app itself, and then plugs them all into a linear regression equation. This linear regression equation is corrected by a coefficient. Put simply, if you tell the Fitbit you are sedentary versus telling the Fitbit that you exercise vigorously, then you'll significantly change the calories burned by an order of magnitude. That is to say, your caloric output is based on estimated equations. And these estimated equations could be as much as 30% inaccurate given certain situations. And what about your exercise? Well, let's say you're a 180-pound man running on a treadmill at 6 miles an hour. And next to you is another 180-pound man running at 6 miles an hour on the treadmill. 
Are you both burning exactly the same amount of calories to run on the treadmill? It's a fascinating question, and one we're actually very capable of answering by indirect calorimetry. It might surprise you to know that there is a vast difference among people exercising in terms of modalities, and that it's extremely difficult to get an accurate measure of calories burned through exercise. Not only is it extremely difficult, but the estimation equations show us that they differ significantly. Think about it. If I've been running all of my life, and I'm very efficient at it, there's no wasted motion. I'm not bouncing up and down. I'm not swinging my arms further than they need to be swung. I'm not any more stressed out than necessary, and my heart rate's nice and low. Then me, at 180 pounds, running 6 miles an hour, is going to burn a lot fewer calories running at the same intensity as somebody else who bounces too much when they run. Their arms swing in vast directions, and their heart rate's really high because they had a stressful day at work today, and they're relatively deconditioned in their run. In fact, I've done enough metabolic assessments on individuals to understand that even knowing the weight, the intensity, the duration, and the gender of the participant can still find me getting readings that show a difference of as much as 100% in calories burned in an exercise. Now, I know I've said a lot of things thus far, and it's probably got your head spinning a little bit, but the takeaways here are this. Not only do calories not measure many important aspects of food, and they're impractical in application in the daily life of somebody who has their willpower going in so many different directions, but the measure itself is highly inaccurate. Let's just say, to make the numbers easy, that you're 10% inaccurate on your intake and your output. It's likely that you're even more than that as far as inaccuracy is concerned, but let's just make it easy. And then, for the sake of argument, let's say you'd like to lose one pound of fat this week. One pound of fat is 3,500 calories, which would require you, in one week's time, to have a caloric deficit of 500 calories. That's easy math, right? But now let's say you're 10% inaccurate in your input and your output with regard to calories. 10% inaccuracy on your input and your output on a 500 calorie deficit would be a 20% inaccuracy in the deficit itself. 20% of 500 calories is 100 calories per day. That's not a big deal, right? Wrong. If the calorie gurus are to be believed, then a 100 calorie difference in your intake versus your output is crucially important, and that those extra calories add up. If your inaccuracy ends up being in your favor, meaning that you ate 100 calories less than you thought you did every single day, then at the end of the year, you're at a 36,500 calorie deficit, resulting in 10 pounds of weight loss that you didn't even mean to lose. Fantastic. But the opposite is also true as well. If you take a 10% inaccuracy in your measures of caloric expenditure and consumption and extend that in the negative direction, meaning that you ate 100 more calories than you thought you did every single day, then that would add up to 10 extra pounds of fat on your body while you were trying to lose weight. And that would be completely separate from any actual efforts you made in terms of your program. You could exercise consistently every day. You could prep your meals. You could cook your food well. You could get your social support system on board. You could track your calories religiously in your app. But because of the problems with the accuracy in measuring calories, then not all of that effort would translate to results. There's nothing worse than watching somebody work extremely hard at something and get nowhere. And so even if calories are the only thing that matter, currently we're terrible at measuring calorie intake and measuring calorie output. An editor's note after the fact.
it actually turns out that there are many differences among individuals that could also account for the difference in our body's ability to extract calories from our food. That is, for you, a piece of pizza might be worth 300 calories, and for me, a piece of pizza might be worth 400 calories. The same piece of pizza, but in two different bodies. Why? Well, burning calories in a bomb calorimeter might tell us the heat energy trapped in the chemical composition of the food. It doesn't tell us how individual bodies might break down and utilize the chemical composition of that food. Not to get too gross here, but there still are calories in your poop. And one researcher demonstrated this in the 1960s, when in his pursuit to understand the caloric value of foods, he fed people food, collected their fecal matter, and then measured the heat energy when he burned that fecal matter as well, so that he could understand the difference in the calories consumed versus the calories actually used by the body. It turns out that the individual differences were so significant that he actually had to use macronutrients as calculations of caloric value rather than the food's bomb calorimetry numbers itself. Now, whether or not you find that as fascinating as I do, the takeaway here is this. Measuring calories is a highly inaccurate business as it stands currently, and it turns out it might actually depend very highly on the individual consuming the calories in the same way that it highly depends on the individual doing the exercise. And if we're going to make calories matter, we better get much better at measuring calories before we start spending a whole lot of time and energy trying to track them. We've talked about what calories don't measure. We've also talked about the impracticality of applying caloric tracking to both our food intake and our food output. And then we talked about the inaccuracy of the measures themselves. But this next one is the one that really gets my goat, and that's this. There's a huge amount of money in calorie counting. If you've been following my show for a while, you know that one of the things that I work to shed light on in the health and fitness industry is where the money comes from with regard to supplements, influencers, gyms, and even different dieting philosophies. I was recently exposed to some information about influencers with regard to intermittent fasting. It turns out that intermittent fasting doesn't necessarily work the way that everybody seems to think it does, and there's plenty of research to corroborate that it's a much more nuanced tool for fitness and weight loss than was originally marketed. There's a body of research suggesting, in fact, that in conditioned males, intermittent fasting in addition to exercise may actually lower testosterone over the long term, rather than raising testosterone as found in the short term and diminishing fat stores. Now, that's a very fascinating piece of evidence, especially since some of the biggest proponents of intermittent fasting that I've heard on the radio waves are also proponents of and distributors of testosterone. In other words, there are some practices in the health and fitness industry that encourage you to do something that will require you to spend money to fix the issue in the long term. Imagine you'd like to lose some weight, and imagine you've heard intermittent fasting is good for you. And so you buy somebody's intermittent fasting program and get some nutrition guidance about how you could incorporate intermittent fasting into your world. You are so happy because in the course of about two months, you lose 30 pounds and you've never felt better. Your musculature is going up, your pants are fitting better, you're sleeping well, and everything seems hunky-dory. So you maintain this caloric deficit and intermittent fasting lifestyle for a period of six months. Something crazy happens at work and you start sleeping terribly. You realize you're more depressed than you used to be. Your energy level's nice and low. You don't seem to bounce back as well from your workouts, and you're starting to recollect that stomach fat you'd lost. What the heck's going on, man? You go to your doctor, and he says, 
Well, you've got low testosterone, but no worries. We've got patches and injections for that. It'll only cost you this much with your insurance. Or even better, you find that the influencer who convinced you to do intermittent fasting and who you paid for nutrition help actually offers some testosterone replacement therapy themselves. So that's really convenient. The person who helped you lose weight is also going to help you get your testosterone back on track. Never mind the fact that it's possibly the intermittent fasting in combination with exercise and a long-term caloric deficit that lowered your testosterone in the first place. Insidious, isn't it? Now, I'm not telling you this because I believe the health and fitness industry has some sort of crazy conspiracy that's ruining everybody's health. And while it's very possible that there are many money loops like this that make money but are actually unproductive in helping the average person achieve better health and fitness for themselves, I believe that calories might be one of those things. I don't believe there are calorie gods somewhere orchestrating an increased proliferation of your counting your calories in and exercising your calories off. But I do think it's important for you to look around. And when people are advocating calories in versus calories out and telling you that counting calories, the ones that are coming in your face versus the ones that are coming out, are the only surefire way for you to achieve your results. And it'll make your life much better if you could just stick to your caloric surplus or deficit. Ask yourself where the money's coming from. I worked to tackle this issue in an episode entitled Overcoming Obesity Part 1, The Size of the Problem. But since recording that episode, the issue of the business of counting calories has become a much bigger one than I had originally understood. And perhaps I'll explore those implications in a future episode, maybe with the help of another qualified professional. Because I'll admit, I don't even know how deep this sort of stuff goes. You can help me out by letting me know whether or not you're interested in hearing more about the money that's involved in calorie counting. Well, Alex, you've done it. Fine. I agree that counting calories might not get me where I would like to be. So now what? How can we make food choices that account for the things that calories don't measure, that are more practical and applicable than calorie counting, that are more accurate than measuring calories, and that's not wrapped up in some kind of unproductive money-making circle that leaves other people richer and me still at a loss with regard to my own health and fitness? That's a really good question, and I'm very glad you asked. In fact, that's the million-dollar question. I've worked hard in the last 99 episodes of Defining DadBod to bring the most up-to-date, practical, measurable, realistic, and time-bound information in the health and fitness industry. It's not been easy. We're not done. But I think we've made some headway. We're going to continue to explore how to practically make decisions about the food that we put in our face, the exercise that we choose to do, and in the daily lifestyle habits that we perform ourselves, pass on to our kids, and deeply affect our community with. But I encourage you to join us for next week's show, the 100th episode of Defining DadBod. I'm going to take some time to go through our top 10 episodes of Defining DadBod, because I know time is important, and I want to make sure you make the best use of it. Our listeners have voted with likes, shares, subscribes, downloads, and plays, And with those metrics, we've created our top 10 episodes of the first 100 of Defining DadBod. If you're ready to put down the calorie counting and dive into a deeper, more meaningful philosophy around nutrition, exercise, and lifestyle change that works much better than calories, I encourage you to check out our 100th episode. And hopefully walking through our top 10 will help you know where best you can start for yourself. This has been Alex Van Houten with Defining DadBod. Thank you for joining me for Beyond Calories Part 2. If it's impacted you positively, I hope you'll leave us a review 
and use our social media channels to tell me what content would be valuable to you as you work hard to become 1% better every single day. Until next time, guys. Kick butt. Take names. The free practical advice and conversations here remain unbought and unbiased thanks to the support of listeners just like you. For more information on how you can become a part of the inner circle of Defining Dad Bod, go to definingdadbod.com slash inner circle.